Coming to you from Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Quinn Spin. Hey now, and welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, to a brand new edition of the Quinn Spin. I'm your host, the Quinn. I'm back here on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, YouTube, and more for another rousing and riveting installment of the official podcast of Underground Music Collective. And you just heard Revel 9's All Eyes Become at the top of the show. That's been our opening theme song since the great year of 2014, and it will be until the very end of days. And I'm excited for today's show. I had a chance to hop on the Zoom machine and speak with Max Wareham from all the way in Boston. Max is an Americana musician, and he just wrote a book. The book is titled Rudy Lyle, the Unsung Hero of the five-string banjo and it's quite a history lesson it's quite an account of the early days of bluegrass and how rudy lyle's banjo playing influenced the genre not only back then but in the decades since and he had the chance to work with bill monroe patsy klein all these legends of americana music and max made his own discoveries and let rudy's story inform his own musical journey as well so we're going to get into all that right about now all right, everyone, we are back here on the Quinn Spin. And as I mentioned during the intro, I have Max Wareham joining us on the show from all the way up there in Boston. Max just wrote a book, Rudy Lyle, the unsung hero of the five string banjo. And we're going to dive into the book. We're going to dive into Max's research and everything you need to know to then go check it out for yourselves. But first, Max, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Gerard. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. I'm excited to learn more about this as well. I, you know, I can always appreciate a deep dive into music history and how we got here today. Uh, but before we take that deep dive, let's learn a little bit about you. And I start, of course, by asking every guest to the show three standard questions. Those being, who are you? What are your passions? And why on earth would you want to come on the Quinn Spin? Okay. Well, like you said, I'm Max Wareham. I'm a banjo player and author. Um, second question, passions, um, music and education, uh, history, um, I think we can get more into this, but this book in a lot of ways represents, for me, a lot of different passions all sort of culminating in, into one form, which has been really exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, number one is music, getting to share music with people keeps me going. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be on your program today because I think that you do a really great job of looking at something from many different perspectives, um, which which this book is. It's kind of triangulating a personality through many different ways. Um, yeah, and I, I think that, well, I really admire your way of, uh, of looking at different topics and broad scope of your work. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good fit. Well, I appreciate that, and I agree. And yeah, super excited, of course, to learn all the little intricacies, um, of course, of this whole process of writing this book and everything that you had a chance to uncover. But I want to, of course, uncover some things about you as well and what led you here. Uh, you know, so we can go back as far as you want to go. We could go all the way back to the beginning if you want. And I want to know about some of the formative experiences, the people, places, of course, the artists who've influenced you, shaped your creative path, and what in particular led you to banjo? Uh, what in particular led you to bluegrass music and everything surrounding it? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, to go back to the very beginning, it started before I started. Um, my mother is a pianist, and her mother was a pianist. Um, so even even when I was just in the womb, I heard music, piano music, a lot of Chopin and, uh, and Joni Mitchell, and uh, sort of a mixed bag. So I grew up around music. My dad signed the family's musical as well. Um, fast forward to um, to my late teen years, I was living in New York studying jazz guitar. Um, and I was walking through Union Square one day after class, and I heard some street musicians playing. And they were from North Carolina. One of them was playing the banjo. And, you know, I'm from Connecticut originally. It's not exactly the land of banjo music. So I had never heard a banjo in person. Um, and when I heard it, the sound hit my ears and my ears sent the signal to my brain and something happened. It was like a strike of lightning. And I just knew in an instant, that's the sound that I am after. And so I had a, a pretty major shift in what I was doing. I moved out of New York, I moved up to Massachusetts and I started studying the banjo. I was really fortunate to have some great teachers along the way, um, including Bill Keith and who, uh, the late Bill Keith, who was in Woodstock, New York, and uh, Tony Trishka, um, who lives in northern New Jersey. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've gotten to have the honor of spending some time with some of these masters of the craft and uh, just absorbing what they have, what they know, and just being around them. It's been a really formative experience for me. How do you how did you come around with Rudy Lyle? Because I think a lot of he's kind of like a well kept secret, you know, in the formative years of bluegrass of banjo music in general. Uh, but I mean, you look at the credits. I mean, Bill Monroe, Patsy Cline. He's worked with like a who's who of that earl those early pioneers of the Americana genres. So how did you come across his work? I came across his work um, in my own path on the banjo, trying to study the history of it, study the greats. Um, and early on in 1949, Rudy Lyle joined Bill Monroe's band, and he was one of the longest running banjo players that Bill Monroe ever had. He played with Bill Monroe all the way until 1954. Uh, and then he, he left and kind of quit playing banjo and went on to do other things. But I found out about him just by trying to do my own homework as a banjo player, listening to some of the greats. And his playing struck me immediately as being a little bit different from um, how most other bluegrass banjo players play. He had a different approach and a slightly different musical vocabulary. And I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And um, I've always been a fan of his and I haven't, I hadn't learned much of his playing. But as the pandemic was starting, I thought, well, I don't know how long this is going to last, and I'd better, I'd better come up with something to keep myself occupied. And so I started transcribing his solos, basically writing out the musical notation for, uh, for the solos that he played on recordings. And it started with one, and it kind of snowballed after that, and I ended up transcribing everything that he recorded and uh, finding out a lot about him as a person along the way. 
So what about his story? Because originally this was going to be a musical instruction book, right? Uh, where you focused on the tablature, but it became so much more than that, you know, and you mentioned, you know, finding out more about him as a person. What about his story? What about his influence and impact kind of helped you shift gears from having this be a book of instruction to what it's become? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it still has that um, element of being an instruction book. It still has the tab of everything he played. But, you know, I wanted to start talking to people that knew him or other great banjo players that were influenced by him. Um, and so as I started interviewing some of these old timers, um, they all said the same thing, which is that he's never gotten the credit that he was due. And so I started wondering why and doing more research into his story and his biography. And uh, unfortunately, it's a sad story. Um, in 1952, I think it was, he was drafted to go fight in the Korean War. And he spent two years in the army. Um, and He saw really, really extreme combat. And it's a miracle that he came back at all. Um, a lot of his fellow soldiers didn't. Um, and he, he suffered uh, serious hearing damage while he was there. Uh, he also suffered a pretty extreme post-traumatic stress disorder. When he came back, um, his banjo never sounded right to him. And he ended up uh, trying everything with the banjo. He was trying to modify it. He, it got pretty extreme. He started pulling apart some of the plies of the wood and drilling holes where there shouldn't be holes. And uh, ultimately, he destroyed his banjo. Um, and around the same time, he started playing electric guitar and eventually quit playing banjo, quit playing bluegrass altogether because of this hearing damage and because of this PTSD that he had. And so uncovering all of this stuff was, was kind of an amazing experience. It was like, wow, here's this really Im important musician who recorded more during the early years of bluegrass with Bill Monroe than any other banjo player. And there are no resources for other banjo players who want to learn his style. There are no resources for people who are interested in the music and want to appreciate what he did on a cultural level, historical level. Um, so... The more I found out about his story, the more I realized it was one that I felt I had to tell. For sure. And it's always, of course, interesting to see how somebody's life and the events that shape that person's life then come through in their art for better or worse. You know, he comes back from the war, obviously a changed person. Um, and it not only affected his banjo playing, but eventually led him down a road where he got away from it altogether, you know? Um, and it's always interesting to see that shift that takes place in somebody after a major life event and how that affects their art. And I think it's also a tale for any artist who read this book to understand like, hey, the events of your life can shape the course of not only, you know, how you show up day to day, but what your creative output is, what your legacy is as well. You know, and a lot of things, of course, that a lot of people wouldn't know you know, that, that of course are being brought to life through the story, through these interviews. What are some of the key takeaways, lessons from speaking to folks who knew him, from speaking to folks who have studied his work that you think are important for people to understand? 
One of the things that really struck me was his process, his approach to playing the banjo and to recording banjo music. Uh, most banjo players will determine what they're going to play before they play it. Um, in that sense, it's almost more like classical music than jazz. It's not necessarily improvisation. They've got a real clear sense of what they're going to play and they'll do it perfectly. And that's good. And that's mostly how it's done. But what I found about uh, Rudy listening to different alternate takes of his solos is that he was improvising, which, you know, this kind of flips the whole paradigm around because here's the person who recorded more during the early years of bluegrass than anyone else. And it's clear that the process was totally different from how we typically understand how to solo in bluegrass music, at least in traditional bluegrass. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, that's got some pretty big implications for, uh, for how we play traditional bluegrass and uh, for our understanding of it. So that was one, of, I mean, that's a more musical thing, but that's one of the things that really struck me uh, is that he had a really unique approach, a unique process. It's one that gave his playing just an electric kind of sound. And I don't mean like plugged into an amplifier. I mean, it would just, his, uh, his approach was fiery sounding. I don't think that that can be easily replicated unless you're using the same process that he was, improvisation. Right. Right. And I mean, that's, that's really where innovation happens, you know, is within that improvisation within doing things a different way. You know, it doesn't, you don't just have to be playing jazz or, you know, in a jam band or what have you to improvise, to, to innovate in that way. And especially in a day and age now, you know, all these decades later where genres are fusing together more than ever you know, and different influences are being brought into the pot. It, it helps create an opportunity to break down some of these silos that we've been in, you know, in specific genres, specific styles. And it helps, I think it helps long-term on a macro level, really bring about this spirit of collaboration that continues, I think, to manifest itself within the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really exciting time for music now. And it's, it's cool to notice that that was going on back in the early 50s as well, although it's easy to look back on it and say, oh, no, it must be this or it must be that. But they were trying stuff. They were innovating. Right. And of course, as as time goes on, that gets, I think, a little more sophisticated. There are more genres just to mix into the pot based off of what's developed over the course of the, the past several decades. Right. And the different technologies that have developed. You know, so there are so many more opportunities to, I think, create based off of that improvisational spirit that, you know, bleeds into every single genre. You know, music being the universal language that it is leaves room for that kind of creativity. It's not just black and white. You know, it's an art form, just like any other art form. And, you know, it's always painted from a multicolored palette there's always an opportunity to do that and it's 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 interesting to hear your take on this now you know on rudy's work back then and how that kind of informs and has evolved into this current day and age that we're that we're sitting in here musically so why why was now the time to bring rudy's story to light and what do you think that we here in 2022 heading into 2023 how can we benefit and carry that story forward and that influence forward from rudy Mm -hmm. Well, 
the the time was right for me. Um, I recently joined uh, the Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band and have been recording and touring with that band all summer. And uh, it's lined up really nicely to have finished the book just in time to go out and travel nationally and um, and get to not only share the book with people all over the country, but also to get to play some of Rudy's tunes up on stage and just try to, you know, ride the wave of having just joined this band with also getting to share some of his music in a very immediate sense of being on stage and playing his licks and his tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think it's, I think the whole thing has got some, some pretty big implications for innovation and creativity within the world of traditional bluegrass, which I think can sometimes bluegrass, like, like any other genre can sometimes get into this, um, this idea of camps, like, oh, I play traditional bluegrass, or you play the new bluegrass, the more improvisatory bluegrass. We don't do that, and it's, you know, it's us and them. And I think that that is an easy groove to fall into, and I think it's a really unproductive groove as well, because what we're seeing with this book and with Rudy's work is that he was traditional bluegrass, but he was incorporating all of these elements that we might think of as being more progressive or um, you know, you mentioned jam band music. He was improvising a lot, and so yeah, it, it felt like a good time to to really sort of get out of that binary way of thinking and, and look at the truth of the matter, which is that um, this thing that we now think of as very traditional was explosively creative, and people were taking chances and, like you say, collaborating left and right, and it was just a, a time of great creativity. So. I think it's possible to play traditional bluegrass with that mindset and actually be more within the realm of what those guys were doing back then than uh, how we tend to look at it, which is more binary way. Right, right. And without taking those chances too, you know, we don't evolve. We don't grow. We don't have that chance to discover new talents within ourselves, to discover new ways and methods and certainly in doing this research in uh the the series of interviews in the book and just digging in and learning about rudy yourself surely it's informed your creative process and your creative philosophy so going forward as you continue to create as an artist how do you think that rudy's influence will help shape what comes next for you well, I've certainly incorporated a lot of his um, vocabulary into my own playing. Um, it resonates with me having come from a background in jazz guitar, which, of course, is more improvisatory form. Um, so his, his playing resonates with me. So it's, it's nice to have done this research and say, oh, yeah, this is, this is a valid approach to playing. And it's good. Um, and so much life comes into the music when those chances are being taken. Um, someone was telling me that they have this idea um, about taxidermy and music. So with taxidermy, of course, you're taking something that was once alive and preserving it in a state. Um, of course, 
through preserving it, it's no longer alive. Um, and so thinking about music in terms of taxidermy, it's like, is the music, I think it's an important question uh, for musicians to ask themselves from time to time. Is the music that's being made, does it have life in it? Or are you simply trying to preserve something that was a certain way? Uh, and it, is that at the expense of it having a sense of vitality to it? So I feel, as a, as a musician personally, really inspired by Rudy's story and the chances he took musically, because it inspires me to do the same and to really put, put that vitality in the music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense, I think, of reimagination, too, where it's taking the traditions, it's taking what's worked and putting your own design on it, you know, putting your own stamp on this form of music, this form of art that helps to push that forward. Uh, so with that, let's look into the future for you as an artist and anything you might be working on that we might be able to expect here maybe in the coming months, whether that's new releases, whether that's upcoming shows, anything else we should be aware of? Uh -huh. Well, let's see. Um, next weekend, the weekend of October 14th, I'll be playing with the Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band down at the Swanee Music Festival in, in Live Oak, Florida. And that'll actually be our final uh, festival of the season. And we'll be going into a sort of winter hibernation. Uh, we'll be playing several several festivals next spring and summer. Um, but yeah, during the winter, I'm, I'm excited to uh, start another similar project to the Rudy Lyle one. Um, I'm going to pick out three banjo players that, similar to Rudy, are not as well known as they should be. And try the same sort of approach of you know, speaking to people who knew them, speaking to family members, digging up some old photographs and doing transcriptions of their playing, just so that uh, hopefully they can be elevated to uh, to where I think that they, they belong in the tradition. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm brainstorming a new book as well. It's still in the uh, generative state. Uh, I haven't gotten too far with it yet, but I'm looking forward to this winter and doing some work on that. Wow. So so this project has inspired an even deeper dive into the history of the genre, into the history of some of these players, you know, the and once you write one book, you tend to get that itch for writing another and another and another because it just it gives you more ideas, more things that you could tackle, more ways that you can educate yourself, educate other people. I guess looking long range on that note, you know, with the Rudy Lyle project um, now written, completed, and now with this other idea kind of coming you know, into the forefront, what do you hope to achieve long-term in terms of educating other people, in terms of building awareness um, of these players and their impact? What do you hope that people get from your work in the long run? Mm -hmm. Well, just in an immediate sense, it feels good to, um, to help bring credit and recognition to those who deserve it. Um, and to, to those who maybe weren't fortunate enough to get it during their lifetimes or, or, or not yet to have received it. it, it feels good. And I feel as though I have skills to transcribe, you know, I've got good ear training skills and I can write out the tab for these things. And I love doing detective work and tracking information down and talking to people. And, uh, so I feel well suited to, to try to uh, bring some 
credit to where it's due to some of these lesser known banjo players. I also hope on a deeper level that um, this work inspires people to get, uh, well, I should say, to, to view things a little bit more dynamically, to view things in bluegrass music a little bit more dynamically. Uh, again, to not be so much um, belonging to one camp or another, but to realize that in the history of the music, if you actually get past the initial assumptions of what's traditional and what's progressive, that um, it's really much more fluid than, than it appears on the surface. And I think that's where the, the good stuff happens. That's where the inspiration, collaboration, and innovation happens. And if the work that I'm doing directly or indirectly inspires anyone to, uh, to create more, to bring more beauty into the world, then that's such, you know, that's the greatest gift of all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that nuance you're referring to too, like it comes out so often in the live performance, right. In, in ways that it doesn't necessarily come out in the studio recordings a lot of the time, you know, I mean, there's, Something to be said for a really good polished piece that comes from the studio, but going out and being able to see the artists, the musicians in their element performing and slipping into these moments of improvisation, you know, it just adds a whole for for listeners of all of all manners, you know, whether you're a casual listener or somebody who really studies music and, and is into this stuff like you, I think everybody can come away with a greater sense of appreciation for the nuance once they're able to see it and hear it in front of them. And you're, the work you're doing with this book on Rudy, with the, the projects to come, you know, it gives people a sense of that nuance in a different way that they can then be informed and go out and experience it for themselves. So I think it's, I think it's important work, especially, especially in an industry where, you know, on the commercialized end, you know, people don't always get to enjoy that nuance. You know, it gives people a way to learn and then do some of the digging themselves, you know, and there's even this sense of subconsciously, like the next time they're out, the next time they're out at, you know, enjoying live music, they might pull something out of it that they didn't pull out before. I think it's really important work to start to get people thinking that way and get those conversations going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, Max Wareham, uh, the new book, Rudy Lyle, the unsung hero of the five string banjo is available for you now. So Max, before I do the sign off stuff, I uh, just want to learn, learn more about where we can find it online and learn more about you online as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The best place to find the book online is my website, which is maxwareham.com. That's M-A-X-W-A-R-E-H-A-M.com. Uh, the book can be purchased there, and um, I've got a lot of uh, different content on the website, and uh, can be followed on Instagram at Max Wareham Plays Banjo. All right, so make sure you follow Max. Make sure you go pick up your copy. Rudy Lyle, the unsung hero of the five-string banjo. And there's more to come. There's more education to come from Max here in the coming months and years, I'm sure. Max, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Gerard, so much for having me. Absolutely. And this has been the Quinn Spin, two ends in Quinn, two ends in Spin. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, YouTube, and more. You can also learn more about the show at undergroundmusiccollective.com. That's our central hub for all things independent music, music education, culture, community, and more. Learn more about UMC on all the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. Follow the UMC 20 playlist on Spotify. We update that every Tuesday with 20 fresh tracks and the latest episode of this very podcast. And go to nationallive.live. We've got more shows coming up this fall and winter. Make sure you keep tabs. We've got some fun stuff planned for you in the months ahead. Some interesting new collaborations around town here in Nashville as well. And I'll play out just like I played you in with Rebel 9's All I've Become, the end instead of the beginning. And I will see you next time. Yeah.